The whole purpose of uh, our lives in Christ is in the end love. Love is the bond or the sign of perfection or spiritual maturity, Paul says elsewhere. And so we all need to show that love, and yet it's so difficult. Because God has given us ecclesial life. He's given us life, in some sense, within the community of believers in order to to show that love. It's not that we are called as individuals and we can just get on in splendid isolation, believing (coughs) certain truths about God and Jesus read in the Bible, having a look at the Internet now and again. Um, But we are actually called to live a life of outgoing love to other people in practice. And Paul's whole attitude of the Thessalonians is lovely, really. It's really a great example. Now, he writes so positively about them, and yet it's clear reading through 1 and 2 Thessalonians that they had their weaknesses. Um, Some of the exhortations he gives them in 1 Thessalonians 5, you could uh, reason back when he talks about uh, let us not sleep this is chapter 5 verse 7 and like those who sleep in the night let us not be drunken as those who are drunken in the night uh, etc let us not be fearful um, and let's not just uh, jack in our jobs and expect to live on the charity of others which is clearly going on in in chapter 4 uh, he talks about, uh, you need to, in chapter 5 you need to abstain from every appearance of evil don't render evil for evil Um, don't quench the spirit we exhort you brethren warn them that are unruly this is chapter 5 verse 14 comfort the feeble minded support the weak be patient toward all you could argue that therefore in the Thessalonian uh, church there were some that were unruly who needed to be warned there were feeble minded who needed to be comforted there were weak who needed to be supported there were people who demanded patience and yet Paul here writes to all of them in such positive terms and I don't think that he was just one of those people who's uh, naively willfully naively positive he was uh, a hard bitten sort of guy it seems who who really uh, faced up to reality as it was, that's my impression from him and so the way that he writes so positively to an ecclesia where there were without doubt weaknesses it seems to me that he was really rejoicing that they were in Christ. He was trying to look at them as God looks at them, as if they were all redeemed and was surely going to be in the kingdom. And of course, if we can't, um, if we can't judge people, if we can't condemn them, then what are we to do but to assume that they will also be in God's kingdom? Let's just look at the end of uh, the section we read, chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. What is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So he has this image in his mind of the day of judgment, of the Lord Jesus coming, and us being in his presence, that is the day of judgment, and the Thessalonians going into the kingdom. And he says that you, in that day, will be our joy, my joy, and crown of rejoicing. Now, a crown is what you get as a result of victory. And he says that you, if you're in the kingdom, and he believes that they will be in the kingdom, he says you are right now, our glory and joy, that for him would be his eternal reward. Now, if we don't interact with others, if we don't get involved in all the 
all the demanding business which there is of helping each other to get to God's kingdom, I'm not saying that we will not be saved because salvation is by grace and it's not by any amount of works for others. But it is also true that if in this life we give ourselves as we surely ought to to the life of giving to others and for others and concern about their eternal status in God's kingdom, then in that moment, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, as we see those that we have loved and made effort for in the kingdom, that will be our eternal crown and our eternal joy that they are there. It always struck me from really quite a young guy that the the gospel, if it's uh, taken wrongly, can actually be a very selfish thing. In other words, you know, why do you want to be baptized? This is a normal question that is asked when uh, you want to baptize someone. And uh, I suppose we all trotted out what I did. Well, I want to be in the kingdom. And, uh, you know, that's true. I do want to be in the kingdom. But in a sense, it's missing uh, a huge amount. That it's not all about you and about me. It's about the glory of God in others, in the whole bigger picture. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with coming out with that answer. When you are at Sweet 16 or whatever, interviewed for baptism, and you come out with that answer. But there's so much more that you later come to to realize that it's not all about me being in the kingdom. If you're really mature, you come to, I think, be able to say with Moses that, okay, take me out of the kingdom so that you might be more glorified. Now, of course, God uh, didn't accept what Moses said because he doesn't work on the basis of substitution in that sense, but on the basis of uh, representation. And that's why Paul, when he writes the Romans, says, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for the sake of Israel. He says, I could wish, because he learnt the lesson of Moses. He realized that you can't actually do it 100% for somebody else. But he, he says that he had come to that same level of love for, Moses, for, for Israel that Moses had. And so then our hope and our joy and crown of rejoicing that we look forward to is not simply me, the guy who wears glasses, the guy who lives of Zirzima Prospects here in, in Riga, me personally getting eternal life and thinking, wow, <clears throat> that, was, uh, that was pretty lucky, that, that was quite a fluke, that was such a blessing, that was such a grace, uh, quite undeserved that I'm here. It, it's far more than that. It's seeing the glory of God in the lives of of other persons. And so all the effort that we make for others, emails, telephone calls, prayer, concern, worry for them, etc., all these things will have their eternal consequence in the sense that if those that we have worked for and labored for to comfort, to strengthen, etc., are in God's kingdom, which, you know, Paul says we should assume... Oh, he shows by his example that we should assume that others will be in the kingdom, because we, you know, we can't say they will not be. Uh, then this will be our eternal joy. If you've only thought about yourself, well, you you simply won't have that element of eternal joy because of others' salvation throughout the ages of eternity. And. Um, <clears throat> In chapter 2, I, I said that um, Paul in Romans 9.3 there talks about how he was uh, willing to give up, in theory, his uh, eternity for the sake of others. 
chapter 2, verse 8. He says, We were affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. Now, of course, the soul can just mean the life. He could be saying that, look, when I came and preached the gospel, I didn't just give you a set of theology. I didn't stick a book in your hand and say, read that psalm, and if you accept it, I'll baptize you. But that he was willing to give his life for them. But I wonder if, in fact, he is talking about his own eternal life. The soul, as in the, uh, as it's used sometimes in the Bible, uh, that inner person. And... Uh, problem with the word soul is that it's got such a, or the, I should say, the Greek and Hebrew words translated soul, they have such a, a wide range of meaning. But connecting it, as I say, with Romans 9.3, where he says, I could wish myself to be accursed from God for the sake of Israel, that they might be saved. So I think that's what he's saying here. And it's no wonder that Paul made so many converts. You wonder why some people make converts, some people don't, and it's all multifactorial and we can't uh, say exactly why some do, why some don't. But there's no doubt that if you have a heart that bleeds for others like Paul does, and you are not simply presenting theology, that you're not simply trying to correct people's uh, misunderstanding, but that you are prepared to impart to them, as he says, not the gospel of God only, but your own soul, then you are going to, to, to have, uh, I think, some, uh, some great success. So then, Paul desperately wanted to see them, because he so loves them. And um, <clears throat> he, he says there that, really, they were like his children. And in chapter 2, verse 7, he says that, uh, We were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her own children. Now, that's from the RV, and that is definitely what the Greek implies, or, or states. Not just as a nurse cherishes her children, but as a nurse cherishes her own children. Now he's alluding there to the idea of uh, wet nurses. That's what he, he means by nurse. And it was uh, common in the, in the first century for any woman who had a bit of money, or came from any kind of family, you had a kid, and you gave that child over to a, a mama, was uh, what they were called, a, a wet nurse to feed your child for you, do all the messy stuff uh, for you. And uh, Paul says that he's like that, but he's also uh, got his own children. So this is the image he's giving, is of a wet nurse who also has her own children. And that is, I think, uh, normal, um, because... Uh, a wet nurse would have milk in her breasts because she'd uh, had her own children and she kept on giving out that milk because she kept on having uh, other, uh, other babies that she took on from her mistress to, uh, to, to, to suckle. And so the wet nurse was really the lowest of the low. It was always done by a slave. And so Paul is saying, that is who I was and that's who I am to you, for you. And uh, he's really humbling himself by, by saying that. Now he says in verse 11, We exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does, again in the Greek and in the RV, as a father does his own children. So he saw these people as very much his converts. Now if you're looking for something to do with your life, 
and I'm amazed at how many people are. Even people who may be very busy uh, in one sense in their life, they're hungering for something else to do and to achieve. I can say this, that if you bring even one person to the gospel, and you teach them, and you baptize them, and you nurture them in Christ, this changes your life, just like having physical children changes your life. Life is never the same again. So it will be. And if you want something to do in your life, if you want something uh, more than sitting on the internet and fiddling around, get out there and share the gospel with people. And and don't say that uh, nobody's interested. People are interested. There's no question. They may not be interested in going to a church, but they're interested in the gospel, and they are open to uh, conversion. So then he doesn't scold them, of course, because they are his own children. And this uh, image is actually there in the Greek, particularly in chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, you became followers of us, but the Greek word there is mimikos, you mimicked us and the Lord. Now this is very much, again, the language of children mimicking their father or or their mother. So then this is how close he was to them. And uh, as I say, that all these parental allusions, I think, um, explain what I suggested in verse 8 when he says we were willing to uh, impart not only the gospel but our own souls. That this is the language really of a parent who's willing to give absolutely everything, their life, even their place in the kingdom, <coughs> for, for their child. And so that's how he felt for these people. And yet these people in Thessalonica, as we started off by saying, were not completely strong in the Lord. They had their weaknesses, uh, etc. And I want to just uh, talk a little bit about this, uh, this mimicking. Because he says in verse 6 that they became mimickers of him. And he uses the same in uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 and 9, where he says, you know how you ought to mimic or follow us. We were an example, an example unto you to follow, to mimic us. Implication could be, in 1 Thessalonians, they were mimicking him. By the time of 2 Thessalonians, he needs to remind them that they need to imitate him. Um, And he says, verse 5 of chapter 1, You know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. In other words, the image he cut... And the kind of person he was, was because he knew they would be copying him. Now, this is not the same as posing and posturing, as actually being somebody but showing yourself to be somebody else. That would be hypocrisy, and he clearly doesn't have that in mind. He's saying that he watched his manner of life, and he talks about that uh, many times here in, in these chapters, because he knew that they were going to mimic him. So, in the same way as you, in your life with, with your own kids, if you have kids, you, you realise soon after you have them that you better pull yourself in in certain ways. You stop swearing under your breath, you stop whatever it might be, uh, because you realise that you're being watched and you are being copied. Now, for those who are wanting to get a life, I mean, really converting others to Christ is, it really takes over your whole life. Because straight away, once you've uh, baptized that person, straight away you become their pattern. And you start to have to watch yourself. Not, as I say, in being hypocritical, 
Not in just putting up a shadow self, because that's what happens, uh, unfortunately, sometimes, but uh, that's surely not what Paul meant when he says there in verse 5, you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake, and you became mimickers of us. And it doesn't stop there, because he goes on, verse 7, so you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. But he says in 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, 9, that we were an example unto you to follow us. And yet here he says, they were examples to those that they had converted. It's a bit like having grandchildren. Uh, and so he's, <clears throat> he says, in every place your faith to God ward, this is verse 8, is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us. This I understand that they is the converts made by the Thessalonic, uh, Thessalonicans they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turn to God from idols. So what he's saying is that the impact that I had upon you when I preached the gospel is actually seen in the people that you have brought to Christ. Because they, that is your converts, show something about us. They show the sort of uh, impact that we had upon you with the gospel. And so this idea of mimicking and influence just goes on and on. And so it's not that Paul set himself up as the leader, as the boss, but leadership is really essentially a process of influence rather than standing up and lecturing people. And when the Lord uses images like salt, yeast, to describe all those that are in him. These images speak of a sort of indirect transforming influence rather than a, a frontal assault on the uh, sort of unspirituality of, of others. And so we have more influence upon others than we think. Our tendency is to think that who am I? I am an insignificant person. I am without significance, I am without meaning. But not at all. We have more influence upon others than we might possibly imagine. And yet we live in a world where the, the value of the human person is continually, continually put down. But you have that power, particularly over those that you work to bring to the Lord. Now, unfortunately, the way a lot of church life is structured people almost don't have the opportunity to bring people personally to the Lord. It's all about taking them to the ecclesia, taking them to the church. And of course that's, uh, that's quite right and there's nothing wrong with that, uh, that, that we preach the gospel by inviting people to church meetings. But we're not called to, as it were, run a publicity exercise for the church that we belong to. Come to our church. Oh, we've got this social honour at our church. Come along. It's about engaging with people on a far deeper and a more spiritual level than that. And remember those images of salt, you're the salt of the earth, you're the yeast that's hidden in the, uh, the lump of, of flour, of dough, of humanity. It's all about personal influence. That is what converts people, not dragging them along to uh, lectures or to church functions. It's personal influence upon others. Now, all I can say is taste and see. But go out into this world and do 
as Jesus told each of us, preach the gospel and baptize people. I personally believe that that great commission is to each of us. And that also includes the command to baptize. I think it's quite normal that the person who has uh, preached and taught another person should be the one who, who baptizes them. And of course these days with the internet, you, you can do this in all kinds of ways. It's not only in your local environment. You, you can reach all kinds of people. The amount of time some people spend online, I know people who use their online life very well, going around forums, etc., trying to nudge people's interest for the Lord, getting into contact with people. There's a lot of people who just sit there looking at things and being entertained and sending meaningless little messages to, to each other on the latest social networking thing or whatever it might be. But you can get out there and really influence people. See, he says in verse 4 of chapter 2, that we have been put in trust with the gospel. And uh, the Greek there really means we have been enfaithed. God has made a, taken a risk with us. He's trusted us. He's given us, as it were, all his wealth, or Jesus has in the parable. You know, he, as it were, puts all his uh, money together and then all his wealth, and then he splits it up amongst his people and says, look, I'm going away. You trade with this. See what you can do. And he says in that context... Uh, verse 4, not as pleasing men, but God, which try, or who tries our hearts. Let's not think that the Day of Judgment is just a, a future episode. God tries our hearts right now. And as we come closer to the cross and to the Son of God hanging upon it, it's quite natural that we should try our own hearts, or as Paul says, examine yourselves. And yet, you know, God is also doing that. And we are living out our lives right before his judgment. We are, as it were, right there in front of him. And he is trying and testing our hearts right now. And there's a number of Psalms, Psalm 11, 4, 17, 3, 26, 2, 139, 23, that, talks about, that talk about God trying our hearts right now. And so, in our self-examination now, Let's let the spirit of man be the candle of the Lord. That is, we allow his searching of us to become our searching of ourselves.